from Share Cancer Support. This is Season 2 of the OMBC Life Podcast, dedicated to exploring life with metastatic breast cancer from the perspective of us, the people living with this disease. I'm Victoria Goldberg, and I'm thrilled to host the new seasons of the Trailblazer series, where we shine a spotlight on people and organizations in local communities that partner with us to make our lives better. Their hard work and dedication never ceases to inspire and amaze me, and I'm excited to share their stories with you. Also, I can't wait for you to listen to a very special segment at the end of this and every future Trailblazer episode. It is written and hosted by my podcast team member, Dar Finkelstein, who calls it a dash of joy. And most of all, I am so glad you're here, since no one should face NBC alone. Welcome to another episode of our Trailblazer series. Have you ever asked yourself if Wonder Woman was real? Ask no more. She lives, but her name is not Diana Prince. It is Jamil Rivers. Jamil was diagnosed with MBC at age of 39 in 2018. She is a mother of three, a caregiver, a full-time CEO of a nonprofit organization, the board president of MetaViver, and if that's not enough, she has recently embarked on a new venture, the Chrysalis Initiative, a project dedicated to eliminating disparities in outcomes for black women with breast cancer. It is my distinct pleasure to introduce to you Jamil Rivers. I spent this afternoon listening to the uh, Three Black Dogs interview Mm -hmm. with you. It was (laughs) incredible. They're the only podcast that I actually listen to other than mine, and they're amazing. I am so honored to have you here with me. And uh, Thank you again for inviting me. Oh, my God. I think I would have to keep you here all night because there are so many questions I want to ask you. But since this is the Trailblazer series and we're focusing on the breast cancer community and the C community mm-hmm. and uh, community organizations, so let's t- stick to Chrysalis and you. So okay. first, I want to talk to you about you. I do know that you're in a small group of seven, I guess, seven to ten percent of those who were diagnosed mm-hmm. as Let's start with that. Yeah. So I was the typical married mom, executive. Oh yeah, um, typ- typical. <laughs> married mom worked fifty hours a week or more. Uh, three kids, executive. Yeah, yeah. Just doing what we normally do. Only thing is, I was in caregiver mode because my husband is a colon cancer survivor and he also had a liver transplant. So breast cancer really wasn't on my radar, especially since I was under the age of 40 at the time. Rewind a little bit prior to my diagnosis in 2015, I did have a miscarriage. It was twins. And so after the miscarriage, my breast had engorged in preparation for the pregnancy. And then they had reduced in size just due to I'm not going to be needing the resources of breast milk and all of that. And um, I noticed that one breast was a little firmer than the other. And so I've had a history of fibrocystic breasts, never really caused any problems. So I did mention it to my OBGYN at the time. She wasn't too concerned just because that was always the overactive breast 
probably just a blocked milk duct. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Of course, going back to my busy life, <laughs> I didn't worry about it. Fast forward three years later, we just moved into a new house. I had just started a new job. Of course. It was wintertime. We got kids in the house. There's always germs and stuff yeah. spreading around the house. It's our turn for the winter cold. Everyone else gets their cold. It comes and goes. My cold comes and it just stays. And mm -hmm. so I had this lingering cough for about a month. And I'm like, that's not normal. That's not typical. I go to my primary doctor and um, she prescribes an antibiotic. Still doesn't do anything. She prescribes an asthma pump. Still doesn't do anything. <laughs> I'm still coughing. And when I say incessantly coughing, meaning at work, I have to do a lot of presentations. Right. I had to have a cup of tea with me all the time just to get through a standard hour presentations. I'm just hacking and coughing crazy. Finally, she says, let's do a chest scan. And I had also asked for an ultrasound because I felt a little pinch on my side, maybe uh -huh. thinking I had slept wrong or something like that, or maybe I moved a box that was too heavy. But I also knew that appendix and gallbladder issues were mm -hmm. in my family. So let's rule that out. But so, not cancer. Cancer right. did not run. <laughs> Definitely not thinking about that. No. No. And I felt absolutely fine other than the lingering cough. I'm still just doing my working every day, keeping up with the kids, a lot, very busy. So get the ultrasound and the chest scan. And they tell me that I have lesions all over my body, except for my brain and my spine. And so why do I have lesions all over my body? Liver is 60% taken over by these lesions. And so me, I'm thinking, well, this has to be cancer. What else could this be and why don't I feel any pain or anything? Right. We get the mammogram, we get the biopsy and the CT scans and the blood testing and the biopsy of both the tumor in my breast that was confirmed and then also the tumors in my liver. And they confirmed that I had metastatic de novo, hormone positive, HER2 negative, breast cancer. That was everywhere except for my um, brain and my spine. Of course, I was devastated. I'm thinking I'm supposed to be the parent that survives, who's going to take care of my kids. And I was breaking down crying at the hospital. And so the radiologist at the time told me and the nurse practitioner that was there said, we have a whole floor upstairs of young women that are metastatic. And so this doesn't mean that you're going to die next week. And I really think that God just hooked me up and I lucked out because they grabbed the first oncologist that happened to be in the hallway to say, hey, we have a patient. She just learned today that she's metastatic and has breast cancer and it's stage four. And can you talk to her a bit? That ended up being my assigned oncologist, but she really took the time to connect with me and talk to me, made sure that I understood everything and what the game plan was. And from there, I knew I have to learn as much about breast cancer as I possibly can, because I'm trying to get as much time as possible to be here for my kids and my family. It is actually quite amazing, considering that you had no history of breast cancer. This is de novo metastatic diagnosis, mm -hmm. and you have the presence of mind to do research. Oh, yeah. You are a remarkable woman. Most people, oh, me you. including, just fall apart mm. and become a puddle on the floor yeah. for, for months. And here yeah. you are doing research. Yeah, yeah I, I did get a second opinion. I started connecting to resources locally. 
in my area just to get as knowledgeable as I possibly could and learn that breast cancer is really complex. Really. <laughs> and then I noticed that there were not too much information about how Black women respond to certain treatments. So I had to do a lot of digging in African clinical trials and European clinical trials with the majority of Black women in order to see, because the center that I went to basically said, here's a menu of options. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I love that, right? Uh, you, you come as a complete lay person and they give you a menu. Right. <laughs> I appreciated that they wanted to thought partner and all of that, yeah. but yeah. Um, I really did have to study and figure out, okay, what are the implications of these treatments? How are they supposed to work? What are the side effects? I was really very goal-oriented on reaching no evidence of disease. That's what you want to strive for. Patients that are able to reach that right. are able to have more likelihood of longer survival. So that's really what I was focused on. And I'm thinking, what are all the characteristics? And so there's a ton of studies that I had access to that said, you need to have this type of treatment, this one next, and based off your type of breast cancer, this is what you need to do. So I was really focused on that. I got the second opinion from another highly rated, renowned center in my area in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And both of them pretty much were um, recommending the same thing. Yeah. Strongly so. Well, both places recommended IV chemo. Yeah, because mm-hmm, I had because you had visceral involvement they mm-hmm, felt in my lungs, okay. everywhere, stomach, oh. bones. I know. <laughs> what was crazy to me is I'm walking around, just feel absolutely fine. So Yeah, just coughing cop- you... nonstop, but other right, than right. that, perfectly but fine. Other than that, no pain, no so imagine how bad it would have to be. On paper, I was a mess. I tried Taxol, but I'm allergic to Taxol. Uh-huh. So I had to get Taxol's cousin, Abraxane. Abraxane. You were on it for a year, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And as you know, most doctors do not encourage us to stay on chemo all this long. They say, oh, right. you reached a certain point. But was it your choice to be on not Abraxane for a year? Yeah. I, in my mind, was thinking no evidence of disease. That's what I want to get to. And when I saw that the tumors were responding and shrinking, I wanted to stay on it for as long as I could until we couldn't see them anymore. They came to me after a certain point and said, because of the toxicity, we think that you could now shift to something else. I said, well, let's hold out a little longer to get (laughs) just a little more. They're shrinking. So let's see how far we can get them to shrink. I just want to get them as tiny as possible. And then, of course, I also pushed for during that time to have my ovaries removed because you're telling me that my breast cancer is hormone positive. Let's shut down the store, take the gasoline out the car. Let's shut down the resource. And they pushed back on that and said, we typically don't do that for metastatic patients, especially if they're receiving chemotherapy. And I just thought because me being premenopausal and yes, the chemotherapy is shutting down estrogen production to a certain extent, but not yeah. completely. And also, even once I get to that second line of treatment, eventually it's possible for the breast cancer to become drug resistant. And I didn't want that because then it becomes harder to deal with. So it took me about a month, but I just mm-hmm. kept going back and forth <laughs> saying that I need to get my ovaries out. Let's do this, mm-hmm. you know, make it work. And they finally relented and said, okay. Let's go ahead and take your ovaries out. 
and got that done. And then after about a week of recovery, I went back on chemotherapy. And so stayed on it for a full year. And when you just see the comparison from when I was first diagnosed to then a year later, where it's not even visible on a scan, where I reached that no evidence of disease, that was the whole point. Yes, it's mm -hmm. unbelievable. My liver is all scarred because mm -hmm. of all the metastases that went away. Mm -hmm. But it's so amazing but how it, it can amazing. just regenerate. It's amazing that your cancer was so sensitive to uh, endocrine. To, yeah. But to chemotherapy with mm. ER positive cancers, it's not always uh, that common. You've done a lot of research. As I said, <laughs> I can't believe it. But did you consider a clinical trial at that point? I did. And I basically said, why not do this clinical trial? And they said, that's an option, but we think that this would be the most effective for you since your genetic testing and your genomic testing didn't show any specific mutations to target. And so we think this would be the most effective treatment initially because of the visceral involvement. Let's get you to a point where you're not on death's door and you're probably, stable. Which was probably a good call on that. Yes. Yeah, mm -hmm. Totally. It's interesting that you say you did consider a clinical trial. Oh, yeah. I talked to a lot of uh, patients on my daily basis as mm -hmm. part of the metastatic helpline. By the way, there is one thing I have to tell you. I <laughs> loved, loved, loved that uh, interview you did with the three black dogs, but... <laughs> The one helpline you did not mention in your interview was share metastatic helpline. I was like, mm -hmm. I was yelling at the Yeah, I wasn't familiar like, at the time yeah, that the interview. On my daily talks with uh, many patients, mm -hmm. I have to explain to them that clinical trials is not Hail Mary. It's not something you do at the very end. Yeah, actually, in fact, something you would consider, should yeah. consider doing in the very yes. beginning. Mm -hmm. And it's especially true with the African-American community. Yes. Where people are still very mistrustful and distrustful of the... Uh, and also we have to talk uh, about how they're not presented with that information. That's another thing. You that's know, because a, we have... That's absolutely true. I was yeah. talking to this young woman from Mississippi yesterday, actually, as a matter of fact. Mm -hmm. And here she is, similar situation to ours. Her cancer was not as advanced as ours was. Nobody told her about clinical trials. Nobody. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so, and that was the thing what made me launch the Chrysalis Initiative because okay, I would hear all the time. nicely to Chrysalis Initiative. Perfect segue. <laughs> <laughs> all right. You know, yeah, because it's frustrating as a Black woman, as a patient, I would hear, yep, Black women are dying at a higher rate of breast cancer, and it, it, it's just, it is what it is. It's, they're poor, uneducated, no insurance, obese, they don't breastfeed, right. and they don't trust doctors. They're not interested in their care. They don't want to participate in clinical trials. So why chrysalis? I love the word, and I figured out that it had something to do with the butterflies because of your logo. Yes. That kind of clued me in on that. Yes. But I'll be honest with you. I had to look up the definition. So, nice. <laughs> so why, why chrysalis? Because when you think about it, you're going through a transformation. Your life is not going to be the same, right? When you're diagnosed with breast cancer. But that doesn't mean that your life has to not be as beautiful 
as it was before. Yes, things are going to be different, but it doesn't necessarily mean it has to be negative. And so chrysalis was in mind because as you're going through this transformation, the chrysalis initiative provides that wraparound, that reinforcement. It's such a perfect metaphor. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you for explaining. Like you'll get through this. Yes. To the other side. So we are on the other side. So tell Mm -hmm. me about chrysalis. Yeah, I just thought being involved as a patient advocate like I was and remembering how overwhelmed and alone I felt that first day that I found out. And yes, I was able to kind of hunker down, refocus, think about my family and my kids and just say, you know what? I might go out, but I'm going to go out swinging. So I was able to refocus myself. I created this curriculum to keep myself on track. So to make sure that I could get was, the best care. was for you first. And then as I'm going into my chemo room every day, because I still had to work full time too. You know, I couldn't take any time off because like majority of Black women, head of the household. My uh-huh. husband had his own cancer diagnosis and, and yeah. is disabled. So everybody's on my employer provided health benefits. That's right. I can't just roll the dice and now. lose that. No. Yeah, and put my family in jeopardy. And I didn't tell my employer either because I had just started five months prior. I don't want them to now get skittish and nervous and say, oh, she's not going to be able to do her job. So I got my eyebrows tattooed, put a wig on and kept it moving and just said, well, this is what I have to do and created my own little reference guide. And other women started coming into my chemo room and said, you seem to be doing okay. Can you share what you know and what you're doing? And so I started doing that and it just constantly grew. And then I was featured in People Magazine and on Good Morning America. And then it grew some more from there. Uh, (laughs) A little more. And and it was working. Just thinking about the Black women that we were helping and that I'm helping, they were on track. Good outcomes. tell Tell me a little bit more about the curriculum. Break it down for me. So it's really the core focus is what is the best treatment for that breast cancer patient? Mm-hmm. her, whatever her age, her race, her subtype, the characteristics of her breast cancer, and making sure that we know what that quality care looks like. So what is that standard of care? And then how do we ensure that if it's a black or brown woman, that she's able to get that standard of care? And we're focused on dealing whatever the barrier is that gets in the way of that, right? And sometimes, unfortunately, the barrier is the care team themselves or it's the oncologist themselves, meaning that bias and racism is getting in the way, where they're not being offered that clinical trial information. They're not being shared that they should receive that genetic and genomic testing. They're not being shared that they should get the standard of care NCCN guidelines treatment based off of their subtype of breast cancer. I I think, no question about it, there is bias. But it seems that there is also the lack of knowledge. You and I are lucky enough to be in, in the big cities with great cancer centers. But I find that even for the white patients in smaller towns, mm-hmm. the standard of care is not there. It's all yeah. over the place. It's yeah. all over the place. <laughs> yeah, and makes them vulnerable to disparities. But that's what we have to do. That's the whole premise of Chrysalis, where the program, what is that core treatment? And then there's all these aspects that you check off the box to get that comprehensive cancer care. It's not just the medical treatment. 
Right. It's your day-to-day life, how you structure everything. Correct. How do you manage those side effects? Financial city. Yeah. All those things have to be um, factored and incorporated into your care so that you can sustain yourself oh, yeah. and make sure that you get the best treatment possible and get that durable response. And so moving forward with the program, we're finding that just that intervention where they're not falling through the cracks and they have that wraparound, they're able to stay on track no matter what their characteristics are, whether it's age, race, whatever that disparate group that they belong in that could make them vulnerable. As long as they have that reinforcement and being shared information that they do not know because this is all new to them, being newly diagnosed or maybe going into a new phase of their diagnosis and cancer care. This, it's a great and it's a sustainable model. We Please. just became an official 501c3 nonprofit yes. in late yeah. 2020. And I think we're pretty simple. We have the coaching. Yes, yeah. the coaching is so incredibly interesting to me. I like the idea, as you said, to be a chrysalis for this person and be there more mm-hmm. than a peer and actually literally a coach. Yes. And the helpline works. But it's not the same. And we have the peers, and it's also not the same. What you right. have is a totally different model, and I think it's great. We're just growing. The website just recently came up. So getting out there, more people learning about us, and people are talking about it with these small pilots that we're doing mm-hmm. with hospitals. So and this, you start with the hospital. That's how you do it, right? No, I mean, individual patients can contact us and be connected with the coach. So we get referrals from just an individual referring themselves, or maybe a person, a caregiver or a friend or another um, patient knows of someone that is struggling a bit or in crisis. Absolutely. I know exactly what you mean. Mm -hmm. So in a lot of cases, it's word of mouth, right? People just know about you, hear about you. And then we're also active on social media. Mm-hmm. So people visit the website or they'll see me do interviews like this and learn about what we're doing. As you said, we help the most when women call yeah. us and they're in crisis. This is where our support is essential. It really mm-hmm. is. But I also love the fact that let's not get them to that point where they're going to be vulnerable. So I know. as early in the diagnosis as possible, we can ensure that they're not going to fall off track or have adverse outcomes later if they had that initial reinforcement. This is what I was thinking, that wouldn't it be great if when a person is diagnosed, she or he gets a packet where Mm -hmm. they tell them, look, these are the organizations that will support you, that you need to reach out to. Mm -hmm. Because social workers in the hospitals, as you well know, they're overworked. It's just about capacity. So. This is my dream, and I don't know if you you guys actually are there at the very diagnosis. You were lucky that somebody brought in an oncologist to talk to you right there and then, right? Mm -hmm. But how many newly diagnosed women get a call? Yeah. And and that's it. Mm -hmm. Also, I don't think it's enough to print out some paperwork with some resources and give the patient a folder or a binder 
or a notebook. But right? even that, even that you don't get though, right? I mean, <laughs> right. But I don't that think that would be no. the first step. So what would yeah. you think should be should be meaning done? that the same way we're identifying what their treatment plan should be, we mm -hmm. have to talk about all those other aspects. If it's a patient and they need a coach, and that the health system doesn't already have that team-based care. Mm -hmm. And maybe that navigator doesn't have the capacity or that nurse practitioner doesn't have the capacity to match that patient with us, which right. our health systems that are adopting the chrysalis model and working with us are doing. That's so meaning wonderful. they know that they don't have sufficient capacity to meet the needs to make sure that their patients are educated and understand everything that's going on. And that all those other supplemental things that are integral to make sure that the cancer care is successful, Absolutely. right? It's not just optional. You have to, in order to sustain yourself and stay on that treatment that's working, you're going to have to manage those side effects and manage the symptom burden and understand what resources are available or understand how to pay for that treatment, how to get there, how to navigate dealing with kids and work and caregiving for maybe you could be providing support to your parents. As part of your coaching, you actually right. handle all that. Yep. So if somebody comes to you and says that um, they can't afford it, that mm -hmm. they need financial assistance, you send them to the right places. You have a list of organizations that yep. will provide financial assistance. Mm -hmm. Or we do that legwork for them. We always joke and say, well, getting your business as much as you allow us to. Oh, wow. So if you're just done and overwhelmed, you're just spent, exhausted, we'll draft that email for you. We'll make that call for you. We'll organize everything so you can put it in your chrysalis notebook. Know what questions to ask and what are your next steps for the next day? Or what are you supposed to do that following week? Okay. But you need that thought partner. You Absolutely. need someone because it's just a lot. Well, Breast cancer by itself is a full-time job. Right. Yeah. And that's why printing out a piece of paper is not enough. You're right. And with a recent study, when we first got started, they found that our support is the equivalent of 17 different individuals that a cancer patient would have to reach out to and chase down Not to get that support. Of course. So guess what? Most patients aren't doing that. There's so much stuff. Even for us, fairly experienced advocates, there is still uh, so much stuff that we need to handle on our own. And now imagine as an advocate, what if you knew all of that, that what you know now, and had someone telling you these things when you first got diagnosed. I know, right? Well, is either the change when someone is in crisis and mm -hmm. are able to turn things around or they're not in crisis anymore, or when you have, for instance, our black and brown and other women that are in disparate groups, so vulnerable, high risk for disparities, from right. the get-go are empowered with the information that they need and when you compare their outcomes to their white counterparts and white patients, they're mirroring each yeah, other. Absolutely. You don't have a whole swath of patients now susceptible and having adverse outcomes because they're receiving that quality care and reinforcement from the get-go and meaning right. that they have a tailored plan That's to right. customize their specific needs. And you start with them early on. So Ideally. how mm -hmm. many people when their cancer comes back, they are in shock, total yeah. shock, because their doctors told them that they didn't have to worry about it. Anymore. They don't have to worry about it. They give them the numbers, the statistics, you're good to go. Mm -hmm. But the fact that there 30% of those who did everything right. Everything right. But doesn't matter. 
in your case, in your case, you already have them. They yeah. already have I kind of think that to me, though, I actually think there isn't too much of a difference between metastatic and early stagers because, what? yes, our needs are being met and the research is abysmal, meaning we have to increase those dollars. But just because you're an early stager, you could have just, based off our screening capabilities, yeah. you could be metastatic and we just don't know. We don't know how many of us. Right. Right. Exactly. I mean, this number finally here is doing something about right. it, but finally, <laughs> they never knew how many of us progressed. I, I, I was talking to this group in Queens recently, uh, and they were all early stage people, and the topic was metastasis and recurrence. And before that, I wasn't sure whether I should actually tell them that the fact that they had their early stage cancers doesn't mean that uh, they won't join my group. Right. At some point in the future. Exactly. And, and um, I did tell them, and I think they were grateful to me for that. Yeah. But having your business, mm -hmm. the more I think about it, it's brilliant <laughs> because they already have that. Yeah. They already have that. And God forbid they progress, which is yeah. impossible. But they're not going to be shocked because they're, that's part of our education. And they have a place to go to. Mm hmm. They won't be Googling and learning right. you have, well, one, two, three years to live. Exactly. Right. I think it, it definitely works because I see yes. the benefit, how we're saving lives. Absolutely. And the, and the hospitals respond to it as well because everything is the bottom line. I think it's a mixed bag because yeah. for a long time now, it has been the going narrative and that easy excuse to point to that the reason why Black women are dying at a higher rate from breast cancer is socioeconomic or oh, yeah. it's lack of insurance, or it's social determinants of health related. It's jarring for them now because the data that we ask to look at and evaluate where these areas, it's ripe for bias and racism. They tell me all the time, that's not racist, that's circumstantial. But if you have a certain sampling where the majority of your Black patients are receiving substandard care, you have a trend. These are pure numbers. You can mm -hmm. see with people yeah. with similar diagnosis, yes. different outcomes. We're very in-depth. And our whole thing is, we're not trying to get on you, but none of these things are going to change unless we break up and disrupt the systemic and procedural challenges within the care setting. And we understand this is medical, this is healthcare. These are people. We already know that all of us have our biases. The whole problem is how do you hold people accountable so that the bias does not impact a patient who is vulnerable and needs care, right? So how do you have visibility and accountability to make mm -hmm. sure that you can address these pockets? Because you could be this incredible center. You have equity and diversity and mm -hmm. um, inclusion and you yeah. want to reduce all, disparities. All, all the check boxes. That yeah, you got yeah. it in your mission statement. You're having town halls. Mm -hmm. You have a whole vice president that's in charge of it. You have a committee. <laughs> I mean, you are doing it, right? You are. You're proud of yourself. Right. But unbeknownst to you, you have physicians and clinicians and HCPs, healthcare professionals, mm -hmm. that have their bias and exhibiting bias in their care. So mm -hmm. operating in a silo with these pockets uh, and causing harm to patients. 
So what is the point of having all these different activities and it's in your mission statement in the town hall and the vice president and then the CEO is right. If you have doctors able to do this with no accountability. Yeah, when a doctor sees a patient who complains about something, they say, oh, it's nothing. Right. They probably don't say anymore that black women don't get breast cancer. But oh. maybe some of them think it. Yeah. Oh, when I tell you some of the rationalizations <laughs> that we get from some of these doctors that exhibit bias, it's just amazing. It's astounding. And you're thinking, how do you get to operate this way? But just making assumptions about what care is given, what resources are given, just simply due to the color of their skin. Oh, yeah. That shouldn't be, that should not be legal. Yeah. It shouldn't stand. Right. And actually evidence shows with the most recent research, that is the most contributing factor, largest contributing factor to these disparities. So you can have supportive services, you could have all these different resources, making sure that you have a clinical trial education campaign, and you're making sure that black women know this and that's right. Has nothing to do with them being uneducated. Yeah, a doctor decides that she's not gonna be able to go through this <laughs> clinical trial. Right. I mean, she can't she can't leave her children alone. She works as a waitress twelve hour days, so mm-hmm. I'm not gonna even bother. Or I don't think that they'll be able to afford it. Oh yeah, that's another one. Yeah. <laughs> How do you know? <laughs> I know. You know, so again, don't make assumptions. Yeah, so, all right. So what do you guys and Crystal is do to make a change? And mm-hmm. what? It, well, what? we provide the coaching as a resource for health systems to utilize to increase okay. the support of their oncology support team. But you can't just get the benefit of the coaching. You have right. to also adopt the Chrysalis model where we're able to do an equity assessment. Okay. And it's basically like an audit. Mm -hmm. Here are all the data sets that we're looking at that are ripe to bias, like ripe area to be influenced and impacted by bias and racism. So let's look at these areas. Let's unpack it. It's all HIPAA compliant and confidential. No identifying information Mm -hmm. as far as the patients, just the standard data that they're collecting and reporting on already. And in order for us to help tailor and identify the deficiencies and vulnerabilities at the health system, Mm -hmm. let us look at this data. We'll report it back to you. And then now we can show you those areas that are exhibiting bias and how you can address those areas to make sure that your patients of color are receiving standard of care and high quality care, just like your white patients are. And then from there, you're partnering with us to become a chrysalis center, not only offering the coaching, we call them blind spots. So now you know where those blind spots are and how you need to monitor that in order to have that visibility and accountability. So that if you are truly a center that's dedicated to addressing disparities and providing equitable care, you don't even have the opportunity for these um, bad actors to exhibit bias to these patients that are vulnerable because you're ensuring that there's that visibility and accountability there. So in practical words, how do you do this? Mm -hmm. You go to that vice president in charge of disparities and you tell this vice president, here's what we have. Yeah. Sign up. (laughs) Exactly. And in order to demonstrate the efficacy 
It just depends on the scope. If you don't have the funding in order to get this done on your own, we do have partners that will fund this systemic overview in order to make sure that we're moving forward with innovative solutions. And so let's start with a small pilot so we can demonstrate how impactful this is. And so they get the equity assessment and intervention. They also receive the coaching support from our Chrysalis coaches. And let's start tracking how your black patients are doing in comparison to your white ones. And then we do comparison to historical data, right? And we're able to specifically identify and isolate the disparities at that particular health system, what their standard trends look like as far as the disparities, if there are any between their black and white patients. And then now that we have this intervention, how are those numbers comparing now? And are we able to demonstrate that those outcomes are improving? And if they are, these are also the areas where you can see where you're deficient, where it needs some improvement. And we can provide that support to get there. This is so simple. And, <laughs> I know. and nobody has done that before. I know. It's just the poverty, lack of insurance. Um, so, you know. so there is no limit of how much you're going to be able to do. So what's in, no, what, no, no, no. What's, I mean, in, what's in your future? No, the Chrysalis Initiative is pretty simple. We have the coaching, so the coaching for the patients, the procedural and systemic intervention within the health systems, and we also work with CROs with clinical trials. So, yeah. All right. So where do you see Chrysalis five years from now? Five years from now, we plan on being in the cities and states with the highest level of disparities, the largest health systems in cancer centers within those areas and having thousands of patients that we're able to support with the coaching program. And also we'll have technology that we're developing that people, both patients and health systems will be able to utilize mm -hmm. in order to have access to the model easier. Mm -hmm. And we'll have learning and education on our website for individual HCPs to learn from, to understand how bias comes into play in the care setting and how they can learn how to ensure that their black patients and other patients of color and other vulnerable groups can receive standard of care without bias getting in the way. So this is a, in fact a very sustainable model because mm -hmm. you probably get coaches from your own patients, right? Yeah. People, <laughs> you help them and then they help the others. <laughs> They're paying for it. It's, yeah. it's ingenious. So tell me what's in store for you. Well, my plan is to continue to just be a great wife and a great mom. And I am very focused on growing the Chrysalis Initiative to full heights because I just think about the Black women that we help mm -hmm. and how they're told by potentially a doctor exhibiting bias, we have no more options for you. And basically told to go home and die. And sometimes, guess what? That could be true. We understand we're dealing with breast cancer here. But then in those instances where that's not true, who do they call? So they're going to call potentially a helpline. Is it going to be specific to their situation? And so we're able to, let's see if that's the case, and do an overview and evaluation based off of the Chrysalis model, what your next step should be.
And that way we can thought partner and you don't have to be isolated and on your own. So just thinking about how many women just don't know this information. And what actually gave me the kick in the butt to start and formalize the Crystals Initiative, 2020 was rough. There mm-hmm. were six Black women, metastatic, that we're all familiar with, Shantae being one recently. Yeah, she's and, a friend of ours. She was a co-host on our yeah, podcast. She interviewed me. And I know. She joined the board of MetaViber. And yeah, that's right. just so impressed by her advocacy. And I just think about not just Shantae, but five other women during that time. And when they would share with me what was going on, it was exacerbated by the rigmarole and not being listened to and the neglect. And yeah. it wasn't due to lack of insurance. It was not due to income issues. It was not due to anything as far as socioeconomic, but primarily to not being listened to and not being provided yep. with that quality care that the white women get. And it's just not acceptable. At this point, let's empower women so that they're not vulnerable going in to these situations. And so until the health systems get their acts together, pretty much now every Black woman I meet, I say, sign up for the Chrysalis Initiative, whether they need help or not. <laughs> right. Absolutely. So that brings us nicely to my next question. So how do they sign up for Chrysalis Initiative? Visit us at thechrysalisinitiative.org. Call us at 1-800-929-4979. And um, email us and we'll sign you up for a coach. Wonderful. What about those who want to be coaches? Same place? Yep. Mm-hmm. How does one become a coach? You'll take anybody who said the breast no. cancer? It's not even limited to breast cancer survivors. No, we're right? limited I to breast cancer. <laughs> we are limited to breast cancer. But that is interesting when the health systems see how amazing the change is. They're already saying, well, where's your prostate cancer program? That's where's exactly your it. I was going to say to you, so why stop there? What is the difference? There are other, even gynecological cancers, probably exactly the same problem, if not more. It's possible. <laughs> but let's keep it small and manageable. We just launched in October as a 501c3, but it's been amazing seeing we have something here. Absolutely. And so... You absolutely now we're a formal nonprofit and we're making a difference and I really just want us to grow. But luckily we've been able to find 25 great patient coaches, but they're knowledgeable about breast cancer, meaning they've had a year of patient advocacy training at least, or they've worked in the care setting, meaning they're either nurses or navigators. So they're familiar with all of this right now. You need to at least have one year of experience and demonstrate that you're knowledgeable because that's what sets our coaches apart. It's not, hey, we're just girlfriends, we're connecting. Not to downplay the importance of social support. Girlfriends are important. Right. Right, right. But it's beyond just, hey, let's connect. That is important, but it's the knowledge. And I think what's different also about the Chrysalis Initiative, we're so focused on equity. We acknowledge and appreciate that the insight and value of patient advocates and coaches. Because when you think about, we know more sometimes than the oncology teams. Yep. Mm -hmm. And then think about just specifically the unique challenges of Black women. And just culturally, just how to 
deal with that. And we also provide tools to health systems to understand how to make sure that patient clinician communication is solid, how to make sure your bias isn't making you shut down, how to check that, how to pull in support, how to identify those social cues so that you can make sure that that patient receives the information that they need and that you are providing that standard of care. Basically, how to get the racism and bias out the way. That's what we're doing. We even provide therapy for our coaches too, because it's a lot. This is something that volunteers on on the helpline have been asking. Mm -hmm. It's needed, it's important, but you don't do formal training. You expect your coaches to be knowledgeable when they come to you. No, we do do training because they do do have to understand, and we do have some partners that we connect them to also for training, but they're trained on the Chrysalis model because part of that ongoing engagement and coaching, they have to provide reporting. So Mm -hmm. they're not just having chats, but they also have to provide case notes and there's some oversight to make sure that they're meeting the standard of the coaching model and making sure that all those aspects, all those boxes that need to be checked off for that comprehensive cancer care is being met. So it's possible they're having check-ins with the leadership team after their, you know, check-ins and providing their case notes. And there could be something they missed. So it's thought partnering and making sure that there's that oversight and secondary set of eyes and ears to make sure that nothing gets missed. So it's team-based care. And that's what we help health systems if they don't already have that in place, not to have these um, pockets of silos as far as their care, and not to just think the next person down the line is going to take care of that, right. especially because it could derail that patient's Absolutely. staying on that continuum of care. I'm sure I missed something, and I'm sure there is a question that you would have liked to have me ask you. So what would you like me to, to have asked you that I didn't? Hmm. But I think you covered everything that I can think of. I would just say people can learn more and understand that status quo is not acceptable anymore. It's just not. And if your center doesn't have a chrysalis center, if it's not a chrysalis center, meaning they haven't adopted the model, why not? Thank you so very much. (laughs) This was fabulous. Thank you for inviting me. The only problem I have now is there is no way I can edit anything out. This is it. I can't touch a word from this. Maybe I'll cut myself out. I am so honored to be a trailblazer. Especially during my birthday month. I know it is. And happy birthday to you. (laughs) And you truly are a trailblazer. Patient advocates, we're badasses. We see a problem. We get it done. And... Yeah, we're just continuing on that same trend. So I'm a patient. I'm living with NBC. I'm a Black woman. I see that. You know what? We're done dying at this point. If you're not going to change the system, we're going to disrupt the system. Good. Let's end on this note. (laughs) I will include this in the interview. Take care. Thank you. It was so nice talking to you. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. And as promised, here is our friend, Dar bringing us a dash of joy. Hi, Dar here with a dash of joy for you today. Let me ask you a question. Do any of these sound like things that have made you tense or stressed recently? COVID, vaccinations, quarantine, politics, disparity, racial tension, and oh yeah, 
living every day with metastatic breast cancer. Yes, we are constantly surrounded by these and other things that can cause divisiveness, dissension, tension, anxiety, and pain in our lives. And they're trying to steal our joy. Well, today I'd like to talk to you about a way to ease that pain. And it's just one small word, acceptance. Acceptance is one of the keys to unlock your joy. The definition of acceptance is a willingness to tolerate a difficult situation. Now, I don't know about you, but I know when I first heard this, I thought it sounded like we were just going to throw in the towel and admit defeat or stick our head in the sand whenever it comes to these things. But acceptance is actually the opposite of defeat or denial. It's the realization that this is just how life is. It's a storm we must walk through. It's part of life, not something to escape from. As long as we struggle with the day-to-day -day difficulties and try to fight back against them, we will be traveling down a road to a very bumpy and unjoyful life. The question we must ask ourselves is how can we find the good in these daily events and use them to create something positive and joyful? But the even bigger question is, can we even do that? Well, let me share you a story of one of the ways I've used acceptance to make my life more joyful and less stressful. For over a year now, we've been asked to wear masks. Now, as a person with a weakened immune system, I have a very strong personal opinion about this. And until recently, I have to say, I was pretty vocal and judgmental about my opinion. It irritated me to no end to have to stay away from places because there wasn't good mask compliance. I was getting myself all worked up over this issue. But then I realized that there was really nothing I was going to do to change it. I had to accept the fact that I do have cancer and can't do what many other people are doing. I had to accept that if others feel comfortable congregating without masks, that was their decision. I had to work hard to limit my judgment and criticism and change my expectation about how others are going to act. Now, I still haven't been able to turn this 100% into something positive, but I'm learning how to be able to do more things without getting upset. I've learned that, yes, I don't feel comfortable in large indoor situations because not all attendees are wearing masks or maintaining social distancing. But I can invite a few vaccinated friends to my home for lunch or coffee. I now find that I am rarely as upset and judgmental about the masking issue. I have been learning to accept and make adjustments. If you've ever tried to be more accepting, you know that it's very difficult to do. Like many other things, it takes practice. Like the muscles in our body, we have to exercise our acceptance muscles. So don't beat yourself up if you seem to struggle with this. Keep on learning and do the best that you can. But I do need to warn you that acceptance is not winning a particular battle. Your definition of success B should be that you are no longer judgmental you no longer have anxiety, and you no longer give these situations the power to derail you from your joy. Acceptance should give us hope 
And we all know how important hope is in our lives. As you accept your situation, your fears and anxieties will get smaller and your life will get bigger. I know that this has been true in my case. Once I accepted that my life included my cancer, I was able to move on and decide what kind of life I wanted to live. I no longer had to be afraid and angry about my situation. I took my negative feelings, depression, and funneled the energy into finding joy in my life. Cancer is a part of me, but it isn't becoming me. Take whatever situations, big or small in your life, find ways to turn them into the positive. And if you can't change the situation, change your attitude toward it. Acceptance isn't easy, but I think it's been worth it to reclaim the joy in my life. I hope you'll continue to join me on this joyful adventure on our NBC Life Trailblazer episodes the last Friday of each month. Until we chat again, go find a bit of joy today. This podcast is produced by me, Lisa Laudico, and our truly amazing team of Bob DeVito, Dar Finkelstein, Natalia Green, Victoria Goldberg, Ellen Landsberger, Sheila McGlone, Riley Starr, and Anne Woodward. Our executive producer is Christine Benjamin, the Senior Director of Patient Services and Education at Share Cancer Support. Our senior intern is Sarah Mann, along with interns Angelica Alberstadt, Emily Lewis, Samantha Silverstein, and Amy Tedeschi. We have benefited from expert social media consulting from Jake Amarelli and sound design and original music compositions from Jim Cremens. You can find more episodes of RNBC Life wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and rate and review us and look for a new episode every second Monday. Check out our blog, full episode notes on our website at rnbclife.org. We would love to hear from you.